This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Sephora stores are everywhere you are, so just pop in when you need a brown lip to match your 90s playlist, a confidence boost before your interview, or a last-minute gift for mom's birthday. There's always a Sephora near you. Just pop in. Use our store locator to find your local Sephora or Sephora at Kohl's. Russell Moore, and you're listening to The Russell Moore Show, brought to you by Christianity Today. Every week, we explore here conversations and questions from a Christian perspective to help you sort out how to live as a follower of Jesus in confusing times. This week, we have a conversation to seek to do just that. Summertime always makes me think of vacation Bible school as a kid in my home church. And one of the things that I've realized uh, more and more as I've grown older is that this really was the height of liturgy, uh, perhaps, in my very low church uh, Southern Baptist context. Because at the time, every year there was a, a rhythm of lining up outside the church marching in with the American flag, Christian flag, Bible, pledging allegiance to both flags and to uh, the Bible, same songs uh, being sung. And it's also amazing to me how if I stop and think about that for a minute, uh, all of the senses in my memory light up. The smell of the church foyer when we walked into it, the physicality of walking down the aisle, the sight of seeing the pastor and our leaders standing up in the front to greeting us as we marched in, the taste right after of a particular kind of, of uh, flower-looking cookie and red Kool-Aid. I mean, all of those things come into play. And I realized just what a bodily experience that was, as well as a spiritual experience that it was. And I thought about that quite a bit as I was reading this new book called A Body of Praise, Understanding the Role of Our Physical Bodies in Worship. And that's what I want to talk about today. Is your church too spiritual? Is your church too spontaneous? Are you ignoring your body? in terms of the way that you worship God. Let's talk about that today with David Taylor, who's professor of theology and culture at Fuller Theological Seminary. And he wrote this book, A Body of Praise. David Taylor, welcome to the Russell Moore Show. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. I am wondering, as you have been giving thought to the body in worship so much, what did we learn over the disembodied experience that we had over the COVID pandemic about what worship is and isn't? Yeah, uh, let's see. I would say we learned maybe three or four things. Uh, I'll, I'll mention them briefly. And I, I think everyone will, will recognize or resonate with these things. I, I think one thing we learned was how uh, fundamental nonverbal communication is mm. to how we communicate and therefore commune with one another meaningfully. And, and scientists will say from 50 to 90% of meaningful human con, uh, communication takes place in nonverbal ways. And I think pastors and worship leaders felt this most acutely uh, in their inability to read the room, mm. uh, even very, say, let's call them high liturgical kind of church settings. There's still a sense of getting a feel for the room that you lost. 
I think a second thing that we learned or a loss that we experienced was how powerful serendipity is to our experience of friendship and relationship and worship, how it is that certain things that transpire as we walk in to a a worship space or sanctuary together, all those like um, spontaneous, uh, non-planned moments uh, or in the middle, let's say if you have a a greeting time or a passing of the peace or however you do the Lord's Supper. There are these moments where you're glancing around or you're, it's like a, a meaningful look. And, and then afterwards, uh, depending, of course, how you end your worship, maybe some churches end with prayer ministry, others end with, with a blessing or otherwise. But things happen in the moment and you just, you just can't replicate those kinds of moments that really help us to feel deeply connected. Uh, a third thing that we learned is how powerful and needed our senses are. So uh, you couldn't smell flowers uh, in a common space. And I think a lot of Protestant churches would probably have some kind of olfactory sense at work. You couldn't sing in four-part harmony. Mm. Um, that was just, uh, I don't even think there's a technology that would have enabled us to do that together and for a lot of church traditions, that kind of harmonious singing is, is part of the way that they worship fully from the heart. Um, and then like even things like laying out of hands or prayer ministry or, um, you know, meaningful hugs or, you know, a, a shared moment of sadness. All those are sensory, physical touch related. And those are the ways that we feel uh, seen and heard and loved. And, uh, and I, you know, those, I think all those things add up um, to, I think, this fundamental conviction that the New Testament has that the corporate and the corporeal are intimately and integrally related in how the church is described by, by Paul and the other writers. In many churches, if not in most churches, uh, there's been a decrease in attendance but, but since the before pandemic time. Is that a sign to you that people like the disembodied better and, and sort of would rather just, uh, just download content via screens or, or is it a sign to you that maybe during going without that sort of, uh, uh, sensory and embodied experience for that long disconnected people to the point that they just didn't come back? I mean, it's probably both of those and more, right? That There is the aspect of convenience and ease, which if you have family, you have children, <laughs> it is an act of government sometimes to get them out of the house to go to church. Uh, but even if you don't have children, there is a little bit of inertia that is required to get yourself up and out and drive or walk or bike or take buses. Uh, I, I think that comes into play and, and we acquire inertias over time. And I guess spending all of those months or even years for some, uh, people acquired a different inertia. So I think that comes into play for some. For others, I, I, th- I think, you know, in as much as, as folks have talked about the pandemic as a kind of apocalypse, uh, an unveiling, a disclosing, a bringing into light things that were you know, in the dark corners, I think a lot of folks discovered maybe they don't believe, right? They don't love mm. uh, the church as much as they did, or maybe they don't feel the need for it as much as they thought they did. Maybe they're just struggling um, with God, with the Bible, with Christians, and being at home is like a middle space, like a, a holding pattern for some. And then for others, if I could say this more positively, uh, I, I, I think there was a sense of kinship that they experienced with those for whom the physical gathering is difficult because they're chronically ill or terminally sick or disabled in some way, traveling, persecuted. And so maybe some folks found themselves um, uh, purposefully, you know, mm-hmm. sharing in that kind of experience uh, and, and wanting to be with like the elderly, the shut-ins. And um, I think I just want to at least sort of give credence to that story, which I think is a very legitimate one. Yeah. But yes, I think we were disconnected 
And now we find ourselves adrift at some level, adrift partly because we're not sure if it really matters and partly because we have discovered other things that have caught our attention or, or other ways of being the body of Christ, other ways of living out the gospel that maybe they have not experienced in their corporate worship and they see it very much alive uh, and vibrant in other kinds of non sort of ecclesial official spaces and they're giving themselves to those things. So I guess in the book, I try to, I try to show the positive, meaningful sort of things that occur during and afterwards while also reckoning with the simple fact of human nature choosing the, the path of least resistance. When you um, were talking in the book about this question of why do we need bodies at all mm. and, about, uh, and about how this sort of subject, talking about the body in worship, is going to make some of us really uncomfortable. Mm. I thought about uh, C.S. Lewis when he said that time, uh, people think that people are creeped out by dead bodies because they're afraid of ghosts. Right. When in reality, people are afraid of ghosts because they're creeped out by dead bodies. It's a memory of uh, a realization of mortality. Mm. And of course, if you think about uh, every, uh, almost every culture, the profane jokes and words mm -hmm. often have to do with sex mm -hmm. Uh, procreation yeah. or right. waste elimination, those That's things exactly that remind right. us of, of how, how bodily uh, we are and how limited yeah. we are. And you ask at one point in the book, why doesn't God make human beings like angels, creatures needing no genes, glands, or genitals? That's a good question. What's the answer to that? <laughs> um, I mean, probably the simple but perhaps unsatisfying answer is because it, it, uh, God deemed it good, <laughs> as good, pleasing, and perfect will that we are made from organic biological material, and we are utterly dependent on that matter uh, from creation as well as from one another. And it, there is that... Uh, um, it's that picture there in Genesis of God uh, crafting, like like a you know sculpture kind of imagery of working the earth uh, into a shape. And I know we've probably heard you know plenty of sermon illustrations illustrations about that, but I found myself captured afresh by how um, how muddy, earthy, uh, and intimate uh, it, it, sort of that image is. And then I realized that the, you have this second um, profound image of, of, of intimate earthiness in the fact that the second person of the Trinity occupies his mother's womb for nine months. Mm. That is as physically intimate as it will ever get for any one of us. That proximate care of Mary's body, like a, a total comprehensive physical care. And then it struck me that in Jesus's ministry, he continues to play out that care. That is that which he received from his mother. Uh, he now extends to others, that kind of physical care. And it's not that Jesus does not possess the ability to speak and things can happen. Like yeah. people's bodies can be healed and delivered or shown care. He could think it, but it resides at, at, at the core of his character uh, to show God's proximate love through those physical embodied means because he understands that that is how we are made. We are made from the dust of the earth and it is God's living spirit that enables us to be animate and we bear the divine image and there is no other way for us to bear the divine image except through our bodies. And even in obviously the resurrection, we have this definitive blessing or benediction of our bodies. And so we live into that reality as people of his body, uh, united by the spirit. Yeah, that's really interesting when, when we think about the healings uh, of Jesus, because sometimes you will have uh, a word being spoken, mm -hmm, little girl mm -hmm. get up, Lazarus mm -hmm. come forth. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there will be this action of putting his hands on on mm -hmm. a, a deaf person's ears or putting a mixture of, of mud onto somebody's eyes. Right. It's, it's really fascinating how there's not a formula. 
mm. here. There seems mm-hmm. to be a, a variety of ways that Jesus relates to people as bodies. Yeah, and there's certainly a sense in which there's enough evidence in the Gospels to help original readers and ourselves many hundreds of years later understand that Jesus's ability to heal is an expression of his divine singular power that he possesses. But there's also sort of a host of instances where Jesus uh, touches or lays hands or draws people to himself because it is also the way that we experience meaningful care. That if I stand across from my wife with my arms crossed and I tell her that I love her, but my nonverbals are all saying the opposite, yeah. she does not feel uh, deeply cared for. She does not feel seen. She does not feel loved. And it happened to us a week ago. <laughs> mm. We were having some intense fellowship. And uh, at the end of the intense fellowship, I told her that we would be okay and uh, we'd figure things out. And she said, I hear your words, but none of your you know, body is communicating that we are going to be okay. So can you help me out here? So I, I, I realized that I, my bodily inertia was to, to protect and to sort of to, to hold myself in over against her. And so I extended my hand. And I said, you know, um, can, can you put your hand in my hand and we're going to hold hands. And this is the way for me to get outside of myself, that my body was helping my heart and my mind to get over myself and extend myself out. And then the combination of words and gestures and all of it sort of helped her feel seen. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is doing in his ministry. Ashley here. If you're looking for another podcast that features inspiring conversations with religious leaders, authors, and artists, then I recommend listening to the acclaimed podcast, No Small Endeavor. Produced by Great Feelings Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like award-winning journalist and best-selling author Tim Alberta and civil rights hero Reverend James Lawson to ask what it means to live a life worth living. You can even hear from Russell Moore on No Small Endeavor. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times best-selling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. I had a friend one time who would cross his arms and get a tone of voice that sounded like he was confronting a person to say, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to have to come right out and say it. I, I really appreciate you and and, and <laughs> I'm glad for the work that you're doing. And I eventually had to realize with this person, I have to read the transcript, not listen to the <laughs> audio because they seem to be a little bit right. at odds. Right. Uh, when, when we think about that though, about all of those embodied aspects of worship. I think that you can kind of see that in, for lack of a better word, the extremes. I'm not saying extremes like it's out Mm -hmm. of the the Mm -hmm. center, but Mm -hmm. you can see it in two very different forms of Christianity. Mm -hmm. So uh, Pentecostalism and Mm -hmm. charismatic Christianity, uh, Mm -hmm. often with physical manifestations along the lines mm-hmm. of uh, dancing, uh, mm-hmm. raising hands at the least, but, mm-hmm. but uh, sometimes dancing and other physical manifestations or the very liturgical uh, churches where there's incense, there's bells, there's things like that. Um, and, and it tends to, it, it tends to peter out uh, in the middle uh, between mm-hmm. those two things. I'm wondering for you, what's your sort of church uh, background and how did that inform the way that you you thought about these issues? Yeah, well, I, I grew up as a missionary kid in Guatemala. Mm. So on the one hand, the church world that we occupied as, as you know, missionary family and missionary families 
would have been the Bible Church, Dallas Theological Seminary. But we lived in a predominantly Catholic country where all of my friends on the soccer field, when they scored a goal, would cross themselves as mm-hmm. a way to say, I did it. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and it's sort of this sacramental world that they live in where, you know, their bodies are always talking. And, and I always thought that was superstitious or flippant, you know, in some fashion. So in a sense, I, I think I grew up between two extremes, the kind of extremes, uh, well, maybe this is a different kind of extreme, not the charismatic one. But I grew up in a, in a, a church setting where bodies were at best neutral, um, just, just like things, like mm-hmm. these neutral passive things that we lug around like some kind of vessel. And uh, the primary purpose of the body was to get out of the way so the heart and mind could do the real serious business of worshiping. At worst, I, I think I grew up in a tradition that regarded the body as, as somehow fundamentally problematic or dangerous. And a lot of church history has a language of the body as the prison house of the soul. And so uh, there was this fear uh, that the body would distract or distort. Uh, and so the, the goal is to be as stoic and still as possible. And uh, when I was in seminary, I, I, um, I did a THM in New Testament. Uh, Gordon Fee was one of my professors there in seminary. And I, I did a, a, a theological study of Jesus's healing miracles. And the, the end result of that study was uh, coming face to face with this fact, not only that Jesus's healing miracles were a way of giving expression to the new creation work that he was doing, but more, more, more sort of seriously or soberly for me was this realization that I, I was not taking the body as seriously as Jesus was. Mm. And what that meant for me would be figured out in the fact that I ended up shuttling back and forth between charismatic and Anglican churches all throughout seminary. And mm. then I was a pastor in a non-denom, kind of moderately charismatic church for about nine, 10 years. Now I'm an Anglican priest, but I've attended Bible churches, uh, Presbyterian churches, Methodist, Lutheran. I've been in those spaces and every church has a theology of the body at work. And I think what I'm trying to do in the book is not so much say you need to be like me, like an Anglican, um, but what you want to be is to give, well, if I can rephrase JFK, ask not what is the least of your body that you can give to God in praise and prayer. Ask rather, how can I give all of my body at every cent and sense and sell every part of it in an act of, of love and an act of obedience, because my body is not something I possess. It's not, it's not, I don't own it. Yeah. Um, my body is a gift. And so how can I live into the fullness of it? So maybe you're Amish, <laughs> maybe you're Quaker, you know, in that kind of world or Presbyterian or otherwise, I think there are ways that are, that, that retain the integrity of your tradition, your liturgical tradition, that can still enter into a fullness. And you don't have to be Pentecostal and you don't have to be, you know, Anglo-Catholic on the other hand. But you, I, you can, one can see uh, how someone would be suspicious of the body. Sure. So some, someone might say, Jesus says, my words are spirit and life, the flesh mm-hmm avails nothing mm-hmm. at all. Uh, exactly. Flesh doesn't, doesn't do any good. And, and that contrast between the spirit and the flesh and mm-hmm. worshiping in spirit and in truth. Mm-hmm. And I think there are some people who would say, I, you know, there's a, there's a mindset that when we come together in worship, what we're doing is collective effervescence. It is, you know, the tradition that I was reared in, and and it's a tradition for which I remain deeply grateful. I, I think one thing that happened to me that caused me to change my mind, my heart, and my body was reading scripture afresh mm-hmm. and discovering things that I don't think I had ever heard, or maybe they just never registered. That, for example, uh, the language of flesh has multiple senses in the New Testament. And there is the sense of flesh as sort of a a dimension of our bodily existence that is warped by sin. But there's also the sense of flesh from John 1.14 that Jesus takes on, from the Greek, the sarx, not soma. So it's like he takes on fleshy flesh. It doesn't get more fleshy than that. And so it's just sort of getting clear, like, oh, I, I, I just 
maybe have not read scripture as carefully as I thought I had, the language of spirit and truth is actually talking about uh, the Holy Spirit and Jesus who himself is the truth. And I make a case for that and, you know, may, hopefully readers will be convinced. If not, that's fine. Um, but I think my point there is that we... Uh, that we've gotten that text wrong. Um, and, and many of us as Protestants have read that primarily as somehow this affirmation or, um, or um, prescription for, for getting rid of all the physical as much as possible. So a lot of what I'm trying to do in the book is offer um, a fresh reading of scripture that I think takes seriously the Trinitarian scope of, of the biblical text that um, is not really interested in diminishing our physical lives, is interested in sanctifying them, uh, conforming our physical lives so that whether we are a minimalist or a maximalist, whether we're simple or extravagant, all of it is offered to the Lord, uh, you know, to, to present our whole bodies as these living sacrifices. So I, I do try to argue against the idea, um, not just that, there are excesses that we need to, you know, sort of be alert to, but also um, dignified, so-called dignified or minimalist uses of the body could be just as unsanctified. Mm. Um, th there's nothing that really inherently protects us um, from unfaithful ways of being before God in, in, in worship by stealing the body as much as possible. I mean, John Calvin talked about our minds as a factory of idols. I can have a completely still body and my mind is betraying me or my heart is deceiving me. And I think what we see all throughout the scriptures is the positive role that our bodies can play in discipling us. I think that's kind of where I end with the book is like how it forms Christ likeness in us is the ultimate goal, whether it's sort of, you know, a big non-denom. And I don't, I'm not in those spaces. So I have to sort of read about them or watch them on YouTube. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I know that those are realities that we are concerned about. And I think rightly so. I realized something as I was reading this book that I don't think I'd ever thought about. In 30 years of ministry, uh, in my preaching, every time that I could, certainly when it was in my own church week after week, I would start uh, a message off by saying, this is the text that we're going to be reading today. Would you please stand in reverence of the reading of the words of God. Every time the people would stand and we would read scripture together. And then I would say, you may be seated. And I've noticed that in, in a lot of places, I don't do that because it's so different from what they do mm. uh, that I, I don't want to make it look like it's irreverent if mm -hmm. one doesn't stand. Where got, but what I've realized is I was not doing that for the congregation as much as I was doing that for me, mm. because it, it seems that I really struggle mm. uh, when I'm preaching, uh, when I don't do that, because th there's something about that moment that centers my own mind and heart as mm. to what we're doing here mm. before God. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I've ever thought about it before until I was reading the section in your book when you talk about muscle memory, which we're familiar with that when we think mm -hmm. about riding a bike or playing That's guitar right. and so forth right. and, and body knowledge and those mm -hmm. sorts of, of things that there are these little aspects of worship that sometimes even differ from person to person mm -hmm. that have to do with muscle memory. Mm -hmm. that's, that's really mm -hmm. extraordinary just to think about how we're designed that way. Right. Yeah, you know, our church in the last, um, what, two, I don't know, two years-ish maybe, um, started, um, we say the Lord's Prayer every, every Sunday when we, when we worship together, but our, 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 our pastor invited us to hold hands um, during that. And, um, you know, you would think that for a, a liturgical sacramental kind of congregation, we would all have loved that, <laughs> but it, it was, it was pretty awkward and uncomfortable at first, just the, the, the mere fact of holding somebody's hand, especially like you would never hold their hand anywhere else. Right. Yeah. Um, and it could be like guests, but what he was trying to help us to experience, to know, 
to truly deeply know in our bodies is that the Lord's prayer is, is one of the fundamental prayers that binds us most deeply um, to God, to the heart of God. And holding hands is the way to, you know, it's like when football players, uh, whether, you know, before the anthem or when someone's injured, they hug. Mm-hmm. They put their arms around each other. They, they clasp hands. It's a way to say with their bodies, we mean this. We're committed to this. We are mm-hmm. all in. And I've been thinking about how, you know, this, this, this practice of holding hands hopefully is um, creating muscle memory so that when we are outside of, you know, the church or worship setting, that our hands are acquiring instincts mm. to want to welcome others, um, especially, you know, strangers and guests, or, in, you know, these days, people that um, may be felt to be enemies within the body of Christ and how mm-hmm. our hands are so powerful to be able to lead and show what we can and ought to be as, as Christ's body. So I don't know, those are things that I've, you know, experienced recently, and this is not something that's normally done in Anglican churches, but I'm just so grateful for how this gesture week after week is doing something in me and changing the way that I see and hopefully my instincts with others in the world. And that's important, the week after week part, right? Mm-hmm. The, the repetition of this. And I've seen this in, in churches in different ways. For, for some churches, I've seen it in uh, the way that they end every service with an altar call. Mm-hmm. In other places, I've seen it with the way that they hold hands and sing mm-hmm. the, the same closing hymn together. <laughs> and other times uh, when they're doing what you're talking about now in our own church, uh, every every time a service ends, there's the holding up of one's palms mm-hmm. and a, a word of blessing being mm-hmm. spoken. And I found that just sort of out of instinct, if I'm holding my Bible or holding something, I put it down, make sure I put it down so that I don't just have one hand open. And of course, I'm, I know that this isn't some sort of magical conferral mm-hmm. of blessing mm-hmm. where I'm, right. I'm only going to be half blessed if I have one hand <laughs> right. open. But there's something about it that that reorients the way that we that we see and feel and think when we when we repeat it every week. Yeah. Something good, I mean. Yeah, I, I was talking to uh, a, a congregation recently about our body, and, and I asked if there are any, uh, you know, members of the military or veterans, and a, a few, you know, folks raised their hands, and, and I asked them, why, why is it that uh, people in the military uh, do this gesture? And they, they, they put their hand in a sort of flat palm, kind of halfway across their forehead, and um, it was a leading question. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, it was to show honor, uh, to show allegiance, to show obedience. And I said, but, but don't you mean it? I mean, you already signed up for the military. Uh, I mean, you vowed. Uh, so isn't it sufficient just to have it on paper um, that you're in the military and whoever your superior is, you're going to obey them? And they said, well, it wouldn't, uh, it, it wouldn't be as powerful. And, but, but why? Uh, and, and why do you stand when some superior enters a room? Well, it's, it's the honor that they are due as our authority. I was like, well, why not just sit, right? You mean it, right? In your mind, you have thought the true thought. <laughs> and I, I, I was being a little bit, you know, uh, mischievous because I was just pressing them to get to the point of being able to reckon with the fact that while different human cultures may signify allegiance to a, a revered one or authority in different ways, right? It's not always going to be this. It could be hand up or, but there's usually something that is not subjective about that fact that the body is always going up and out in a, in a, in a somewhat vulnerable way, but also the hand being sort of the symbol of human strength or power. Like we are able to create tools and destroy things and cause life-giving things. And so we were exploring together why it is that our bodies are telling a story about what it means to be human that we couldn't tell any other way. And I said, is not our maker worthy of that kind of honor, whether we feel it or not? And you are thinking the right thoughts and you're feeling it, but our bodies are wanting to participate in the honor and the praise or affection, you know, that God is due. It was a really fun conversation. They were very sweet, sort of indulged my line of questions, but it's just a way to discover like, 
our bodies are actually uh, decisive uh, in the ways that we live our world, um, you know, all throughout human history. And I think plenty of scripture shows us how our bodies, uh, even in the gospels, how people are responding to Jesus in a ways that uh, demonstrate the integrity of our humanity. It's not just that they feel for Jesus, not that their minds are inclined, but they're wanting to give all of their bodies to Jesus. And so I think that's the invitation of my book is, how can, our, how can we welcome uh, and let our bodies be a part of all of creation's praise that is ongoing uh, even today? This episode is brought to you in part by Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Over 13,000 people in the Seattle area are homeless. Kathy is one of many who found a new life through Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Growing up, my dad and I didn't get along. I kept running away from home until one time I was assaulted. After that, I carried a lot of pain inside of me, and I was doing a lot of drugs. I became homeless. It's taken me almost 40 years to get the healing I needed. But all along, God was looking out for me. He led me to the mission, and the mission has helped me in all kinds of ways. I've learned how to set boundaries and say no. Now I'm looking forward to working for the mission. I want people to know there's hope out there. God can help you heal. And grace will lead me home. To hear more, volunteer, or donate, visit UGM.org. Let's imagine two churches. Okay. Uh, one of them is a Pentecostal uh, church, very spontaneous uh, worship. Mm-hmm. And there's a member of the congregation who came out of a very ordered Episcopal mm-hmm. church background. Mm-hmm. And who, so when, uh, when perhaps uh, the pastor of the Pentecostal church says, let's start reciting the Apostles' <laughs> Creed together. Right. That ex-Episcopalian uh-huh. says... Ugh, I don't want to go back to that because what we what we lived through there was so rote and dead right. in my right. church. Everyone is just, I believe in God the Father Almighty. <laughs> and, and there was nothing of life to it. I don't want to go back to that. Mm-hmm. And then there's an Anglican church, mm-hmm. a very ordered, uh, very, uh, very liturgically rhythmic. Uh, and there's an ex-Pentecostal uh, in there who when maybe they bring in a gospel choir one week or there's something a little more spontaneous, mm-hmm. that that person says, wait, 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 wait. The reason I came here was to get away from that sort of hyper-emotionalism and, right. and lack of order and, and liturgy. With, with both of those churches and maybe with everybody uh, in between, it, it seems to me that we actually do need both. Mm. The the bodily uh, experience and and regularity and rhythm. And as you mentioned in the book, mm-hmm. we need mm-hmm. spontaneity mm-hmm. too. So right. how do you, how do you work to get both of those things present? Yeah. So uh, in the book, I have an entire chapter that I called the discipline of the body. So prescriptive uses of the body. And then another chapter that I call the freedom of the body or spontaneous uses of the body. And the main point that I try to make is that each is discipling or training us in distinctive ways. And I try to show how in the rest of our society, it happens all the time. If you go to a football game, uh, there will be prescriptive things. You know, you stand for the national anthem, you put your hand on your heart. I'm not sure how I feel about venturing into this territory, but you can do it if you wish. But the whole kneeling uh, in the NFL, right? The national anthem. That was perceived to be a violation of loyalty to the country. Of course, the story that they were telling was a different one. It was a different form of loyalty. But all this to say that what we do with our bodies prescriptively matters a lot. But then in the middle of the game, we find ourselves caught up. And sometimes we are literally swept up uh, in enthusiasm. And that requires good teaching. It it requires ongoing good teaching. uh, Because I grew up in a Catholic country where for many, all of that physical stuff meant nothing. It translated, it was mindless for them. But I've been a pastor in charismatic circles where a lot of that physical stuff could be equally mindless or heartless. So good teaching, pastoral care, pastoral discernment is needed. But perhaps maybe there's a sense that for a season, 
those two individuals, they just need a break. They need to unwind. They need a chance to discover a new wineskin. And perhaps these specific you know, things that are done in worship are too upsetting because um, they tap a place of, of pain mm. or of upset where they're recalling an experience that caused them to be a, far away from God not close to God, far away from the church and not close to the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. And so there needs to be, I guess, grace for them as well. Hopefully they would experience grace, you know, in each to be a mess or not to be attuned to everybody in the moment. And hopefully there's a good pastor who's kind. Yeah. Yeah. I, I couldn't help but think as I was reading sections of your book, and I suppose it's just because of working in the area for so long now uh, of church sexual abuse mm. and how the, the dark side of this is that mm. one of the reasons why I mean, all abuse is terrible, mm -hmm. but church sexual abuse is even more terrible, mm -hmm. uh, if you could put it in that category, because you have someone who's not only attacking someone's uh, body, but their, mm. their soul as well, all mm -hmm. at the same time, using spiritually abusive mm -hmm. means to carry out mm -hmm. physically abusive uh, right. actions too. D do you, do you see it that way that, that what's happening when, uh, when you have that kind of exploitation and, and abuse that you, you really do have an attack on everything a person is? Yeah. Yes, I would say, if I may, it's vile, it's perverse, it's dehumanizing, it's destructive, uh, and and the effects are for years. That's the nightmare of it all. Mm -hmm. Even all the therapy and counseling, and even like art therapies and musical therapies that are very, they use the senses in order to bring about healing to the senses. It's physical things to bring healing to physical things. Um, that's just, it's a long, long traumatic, uh, grievous process. And, um, and yeah, I mean, what, what to say, but yeah. <laughs> these things, I, I'm teaching a class on the Psalms and I've told my students there are certain things that are God damnable. Mm. Like that's actually the imprecatory Psalms, the curse. They're, they're damning the things that ought to be damned, damned in the world. Anything that violates the integrity yeah. of a human life is damnable. Yeah. Um, but hopefully they will find a trusting, safe, Jesus-loving, care-filled community that will be a part of that long, long work of restoration that would enable them to be in their bodies again in a, in a place at peace because they become disassociated from their bodies in so many ways. But that's the hope at least. Do you think that having seen those uh, abuses, that sometimes that can actually rob a congregation of legitimate touch? Yeah. Um, I, I think there are some places where there's a, a fear that if a church member hugs another church member, mm. that that this could be perceived uh, mm. in the same way that someone else has used the, maybe even this right. the exact same sort of action right. in order yeah. to prey upon someone. And so there's, there's sort of a hyper uh, attention, which is sure. good in most ways, mm -hmm. but it it also can can freeze out legitimate touch how, how do you how do you learn how to do that in a way that is redemptive to to not just be standoffish from each other right while at the same time recognizing there are a lot of people for whom touch was the beginning of right of awful things yeah i mean i i'm going to guess maybe you know who lori wilbur is Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. She was, so she wrote a book a few years back called Handle with Care. Yes. All about 
um, our physical bodies. And she, she writes about that. And I think she writes about it in a very beautiful way. And if I may, I would gladly and, and uh, heartily recommend her book because she does a good job of, of, of helping readers understand how complicated and not straightforward the healing experience is but how the hope is that there would be at least enough few trusted ones that could be a part of, you know, a circle of friends that could, you know, bring about God's um, beautiful work of healing in someone's body so that they would feel safe and trusting again with others' bodies. And uh, it's an all hands on deck, if I can use that metaphor. Like the whole community needs to buy in to being respectful, honoring, honoring the dignity of others, not presuming upon others. And there's so many ways in which all of us, I guess, in some, you know, fashion are careless. Mm-hmm. And that's, that, that is, that is not what we see in Jesus. And so I have a section in the book I talk, I titled the touchy feely ways of Jesus and that he uses touch to communicate the, this, um, proximate care, this affection that God has for us. But he, Jesus is always handling people in, in, in unique ways, um, attending to the uniqueness of what each person needs. He's, there's no generic humanity in Jesus's ministry. So one needs one thing and, and another needs another. But there's always a sense in which he is drawing them into greater proximity, greater intimacy, where they would be all eventually enfolded in God's care, which then now we are his hands and his feet for better and for worse. Mm. Um, and I, obviously, you know better than most why it is that so many young people are leaving because they have not experienced the hands and feet of Jesus in his corporate body to be a gracious one, a merciful one, a kind, um, et cetera, et cetera. I sort of chuckled when I read uh, the section in your book on walking because <laughs> uh, my wife knows that it is really difficult for me to pray. Mm. If I'm not walking, mm. that, mm-hmm. that this is the best time for me to pray is to pray as I'm walking for whatever uh, reason. It's just hard to to pray sitting in a chair or, or kneeling before a chair for me. And you know, there are other people for whom I know that would be the opposite. Uh, how, how can somebody, it's just the normal practices of prayer and Bible reading and so forth. How can a person reconnect to the body in doing that? Yeah. I mean, I think the good news is it doesn't have to be complicated. You don't have to be sophisticated. You do not have to be Anglican. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But just sort of recognize that our bodies are always talking. Our bodies have inertias. Our bodies can be a part of the training and discipling, making us more like Jesus. So... I think honestly, you know, that simple hand gesture, uh, hands up. Mm-hmm. Um, I, we, my wife and I have been watching The Chosen as many, many hundreds of thousands have. And we've just so loved um, how it is that uh, mainly we see the disciples when they begin their day and they're about to, to eat, that they have their hands open and there's a simple prayer of commendation. Uh, I just sort of resonated deeply with both of us. And it was just last night we were talking about like, oh, we should do, we should do something with our bodies. Mm-hmm. We're with the people that care about our bodies, but wouldn't it be wonderful if we started our, our morning just with a simple hand gesture? You know, my hands are yours. May they be instruments of peace this day. May they receive all the goodness that you have to give us this day. You know, just those kinds of things. It could be standing, it could be kneeling. Honestly, for some people, maybe prostrate. Uh, if you have carpet or a rug, um, but just like your whole body in this complete vulnerable posture to say, all that is mine is yours. All that is mine has been given from you. It is all from and for you. May you consecrate it this day. Just those simple gestures or standing could be, you know, I, I have friends that, that uh, they have backyards that face the sunrise and they go out back and they stand, their prayer happens there and they welcome the sun as a way to say, you know, as the sun rises on the east, may you rise this day within my life. And so that standing welcoming kind of gesture, it doesn't have to be complicated, but it is powerful. It's just 
powerful like everything else that we do with our bodies in our quote unquote, you know, normal lives that our bodies can help our hearts and minds get aligned. There is a sense in which God lovingly honors our unique humanity, our unique bodies, how we're wired. And depending on where you live and who's in your household and what opportunities for being in nature, there is, I, I think, a trial and error. But I think the more that we do it, the more I think we discover the freedom that comes from it. My daughter is learning how to play the piano. And right now it's just a lot of what feels like depressing repetition. Yeah. And uh, I, I keep telling her, hang in there, hang in there. One of these days, you're going to be free to play whatever you wish because you will know it. And I think that's my hope with the book is the more we embrace the disciplines that come in and through our bodies, the more free we will be to give away our bodies in the name of Jesus, with the love of Jesus to those who most need it from us. Yeah, Tim Keller used to talk about uh, the discipline of learning how to play an instrument that feels rote and artificial mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. too, too regulated, but it's, it's by doing that that someone is actually able to do an improvisation and to have the right. kind of freedom that comes with that. I think that's, that's very true in spiritual life as well. Yeah. The book is called A Body of Praise, Understanding the Role of Our Physical Bodies in Worship by Professor David Taylor, Fuller Seminary. Thank you, David, for being with us today. Thank you, Russell. Appreciate it. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producers are Eric Petrick, Russell Moore, and Mike Cosper. Hosted by Russell Moore. Produced by Ashley Hales. Associate producers, Abby Perry and Azurae Phelps. CT administration provided by Christine Kolb. Social media by Kate Lucky. Director of operations for CT Media is Matt Stevens. Production assistance provided by Core Media. Audio engineer is Kevin Duthu. Coordinator is Beth Grabencourt. Video producer is John Rowland. The theme song for The Russell Moore Show is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton. 